Hello and welcome to this episode of The Complete Interpreter by me, Sophie Llewellyn-Smith, otherwise known as The Interpreting Coach. Why The Complete Interpreter? Because you are more than an interpreting or translation machine. And so this is a podcast about all things mindset for interpreters and interpreting skills. And at some point, I promise a little bit of marketing. Today, I'm talking about formal register in your B language, although I suppose that many of my tips could be applied to an A language as well. But most of my work is with retourists, and so I'm focusing specifically on B language. The first thing I should say is this is number two in a series of three podcast episodes on this subject. So if you haven't listened to part one, then please go back and listen to that. Uh, and the reason I've split it into three is because it seems to me that if you are trying to improve your mastery of register in your B language, then there are three stages to go through. You can go through them concurrently. You don't have to spend 10 years on stage one and then two years on stage two. But uh, I thought conceptually it was quite interesting to separate them out. So part one is about improving your sensitivity to register in your B language, which is something that can be difficult to do. We think that it comes naturally to us in our mother tongue, and that's because we've grown up surrounded by different situations, different contexts, and we have observed how people speak in that context. And then on top of that, there's been a little bit of formal reinforcement of those instincts. For example, I can remember when I did English O-level, because that's how old I am, I took O-levels and not GCSEs, uh, we had to write a letter as part of our English O-level to a hotel. And clearly the aim was to get us to write in a more formal style in that letter. We learned to write, dear sir or madam, and at the bottom you had to write yours faithfully. Or you would write, dear Mrs. Adams, and at the bottom you would write yours sincerely. Like so many things in my life, this is completely irrelevant now because everybody just writes kind regards or just regards if they're feeling grumpy <laughs> or best wishes. Um, so there was a little bit of formal reinforcement of one's instincts as a native speaker. But basically, native speakers, I think, learn about register through observation and mimicking. And occasionally they will get it wrong, but perhaps not very often. Whereas if you're working into a B language, it is much harder to cultivate that sensitivity to register in another language. If you read something in a book, it's not always obvious that that thing is perhaps vulgar or extremely formal. Unless you look it up in a dictionary and it tells you that it's formal or informal, or unless you ask somebody and they tell you. So part one was about developing your awareness of register in your B language. This episode is about vocabulary building. So you can start building a repertoire, a stock of phrases that you know to be more formal. And then part three will be about activating all of this knowledge and trying to incorporate the more formal turns of phrase into your active vocabulary so that you can call on them when you're in the booth and when you need them. Right, vocabulary building it is today. I am going to give you some exercises that I think could help you to build up a stock of more formal expressions or phrases. 
In some cases, in order to make sure that what you're learning is more formal, you will have to look some things up in the dictionary or ask a native speaker. Once you've done that, here are some of the exercises that you can do. Exercise one is one that is firmly advocated by the great Andy Gillis. And that is to learn a little passage by heart every day. It's up to you to choose the passage that you want to learn. And therefore, you can go and look for something quite formal. You could go and read the transcript of a UN speech, for example. You could go and read the transcript of some prize giving ceremony or uh, a speech given by a politician after uh, some kind of world changing event. And that way you can be relatively sure that it is quite formal. Or it could be something from an academic journal about psychology, who knows? Maybe it depends on what kind of setting you work in. So the idea is for you to find a passage, not too long, that will be useful for you because it contains interesting and useful nuggets of goodness when it comes to formal register. So you simply pick your passage and you learn it by heart. And the next day you learn another one by heart. Maybe you revise number one. <laughs> the idea is to start incorporating some more formal turns of phrase into your active vocabulary so that they can become automatic. So that one day you're interpreting and you think, haha, I could use this phrase that I learnt by heart. Exercise two is about links. Now, if you listen to the previous episode about uh, awareness of register, you may have heard me mention the idea that if you just sprinkle in a bit of formality in a largely neutral um, interpretation or a little bit of informality, that can be enough. You don't need every single word to be formal or informal or neutral. In fact, that's impossible because there are some words that don't have three or four equivalents from a register point of view. A table does not have four different equivalents. There aren't four ways to say table, one of which is very formal and one of which is very informal. So there are parts of the language that can be formal and there are parts of the language that cannot be formal. For that reason, when you're interpreting, many of the words that you use will just be neutral. Uh, and all sorts of things like prepositions or articles are neutral anyway. We say a and the, we say on, in, about, under. There aren't five different ways of saying that. However, there are categories of words where you can indicate formality. So some adjectives, for example, some verbs, some nouns can be formal or informal, and some links. And the thing with links is that, depending what you're interpreting, obviously, you could have several links coming up. Logical connectors. I'm talking about things like and, but, so, if, unless. So those little words or, or sometimes longer phrases that connect ideas. It's very difficult to speak or to interpret without using any logical connectors because then what you're saying wouldn't hang together. <laughs> so one of the very important parts of interpreting is to connect ideas in a logical way using these transition phrases. Now, 
Some of these are more formal than others. And this can be quite an easy shortcut to indicating formality right from the outset and making an impression on your listeners. And actually, I think if you do that right from the start, <clears throat> if you say something formal right from the start, like, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, uh, notwithstanding your disagreement, I propose that we adopt this uh, document immediately. <laughs> you can see that I hadn't pre-prepared that example at all. <laughs> I was just thinking out loud. Anyway, you can make an impression of formality right from the start. And then you could continue in a relatively neutral vein, just with the odd bit of formality sprinkled in here and there. So that was a very long-winded way of saying that exercise two is about brainstorming versions of links, logical connection words, that are more formal. So have a think about which ones are more formal that you could slip in instead of saying, but, can you say, however, can you say, nevertheless, can you say, nonetheless? Take a few minutes and sit down and brainstorm those more formal versions of links. Uh, by the way, I mentioned one more shortcut in the previous episode, and that was to do with contractions, a very quick and easy way to raise the, the register, the formality of what you're saying, is to stop using contractions. In everyday conversation, we often say, oh, I can't do that, I won't, I don't understand. As soon as you say, we do not agree, Chairman, we cannot go along with your proposal, we do not wish to stand in the way of, etc., then bang, it's more formal already. Exercise three is about stock phrases or set phrases, the sorts of things that speakers say at the beginning, for example, that a chairman might say at the beginning of a meeting or that a speaker might say when they've just been invited up to the podium to give a speech or that a politician might say at the beginning of some kind of address. And sometimes these phrases, be they beginnings or endings, have quite a ritualistic character to them. They are also not worth wasting time on, by which I mean if you're working in simultaneous and every time you are dealing with situations like that, you reinvent the wheel and you try and come up with a, a good turn of phrase, that's a waste of your mental energy. Learn a few by heart. Uh, make sure that they are sufficiently formal. One of the ways that you can do this is simply to get hold of a few transcripts of a relevant situation for your line of work and just look at how people have begun. Uh, in a political speech, maybe it'll begin with forms of address like excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, and then there'll be some sort of relatively formal and ritualistic way of beginning. So learn some of those stock phrases because then you can insert them in the appropriate location and know that they are formal enough. Next, I want to turn to verbs. And the reason I mention this is because I think quite often the formality in a sentence comes from the verb or the verb phrase. 
That's because, as I was telling you earlier, for many nouns, there isn't a formal equivalent. Sometimes there's only one way to say something. You can say project. There isn't a formal way to say project. You can say proposal. There isn't a formal way to say proposal. It, that word just is. It's neutral. It's appropriate to a conference situation. But you can't tweak it to make it more formal. What you can often tweak or adapt is the verbs. Uh, for example, there's a difference in formality between saying something like, let's set up a group or let us um, establish a structure. Let us put something into practice or let us implement the proposal. So I think often formality or the right kind of conference appropriate vocabulary uh, tone comes from the verb. And therefore, one of the exercises I would suggest doing is finding something like a mission statement, because mission statements often say things like uh, the UN will foster something, encourage something, support the development of what's it. So often there's a lot of verbs and they are quite precise and often just that little bit more formal than you would find in everyday speech. So I suggest that you go out there and find mission statements or documents of that nature that list tasks or aims or objectives and have a look at the verbs. See if in there you can find some good, more formal equivalents of things that you would say. For verbs like to start, to finish, um, to increase, to decrease, just simple ideas to help. My next exercise is also related to verbs, specifically phrasal verbs. Now, in English, I'm sure you've come across these verbs that are made up of two or sometimes three parts, a root and a preposition, or possibly two prepositions. For example, verbs like to put up with, to put off, to catch up, um, to go out, to run down, etc., etc. And they exist in some other languages, probably not all. Now, the thing with phrasal verbs is... They are very idiomatic when you're speaking English. They generally show that you have a, a pretty good mastery of the language. They are usually considered to be relatively informal. And usually there is a single word synonym. I'll give you an example. To put something off, you could say to postpone or to defer. And both postpone and defer would be considered more formal than to put off. So one exercise that you can do is get a list of phrasal verbs. And that's not hard. If you don't want to sit down and brainstorm every phrasal verb you've ever encountered, then just Google it. You'll find websites that have huge lists of phrasal verbs. And then for each of those phrasal verbs, sit down and think, how else could I express that? Do I know a single, a single word equivalent, very often that equivalent will derive from Latin. Sometimes it's Greek, but mostly it's Latin. And terms that derive from Latin in English tend to be longer than the 
Anglo-Saxon roots and considered more formal or more erudite, more learned. And that's to do with the history of the English language, I suppose. So that is something that you can do. Look up phrasal verbs, think about their single word Latinate equivalents. And by the way, just as a side note, you can play with register when you're interpreting by playing with phrasal verbs, by putting in more phrasal verbs if you want to sound more conversational and perhaps establish a, a rapport with the audience. Use more single word um, Latin derived equivalents if you want to sound more knowledgeable, more scientific or more erudite. So you can play with register. But phrasal verbs are also a way to play with being concise because on the whole, <laughs> they're shorter and they're snappier. Sometimes, therefore, there is a trade-off between concision and register when you're interpreting in simultaneous. For example, if you're trying to be more concise with very dense material, you'll find that the phrasal verb is more concise, but then you will lose a little bit of register, perhaps. So that's something for you to bear in mind. Right, um, I've talked a lot about verbs. Now, moving on to something else. And that is um, some very simple concepts like good or bad. The reason I mention those is because when we're interpreting, or certainly in my line of work, we often interpret people's opinions and their judgments, basically. Do they agree with a proposal or disagree with it? Uh, do they think it is a good proposal or a bad proposal? Do they think the proposal is good for the environment or bad for the environment? Good for the economy or bad for the economy? Now, good and bad, first of all, have judgment attached. And typically, things that are more formal, utterances that are more, more formal, are more impersonal and more neutral. And I'm sure you will relate to that uh, in some of your A languages where neutrality is used as a device. For example, in French, there's a lot of un, 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 where English might say you, you, you. And when I learned to write essays at school, because I went to a French school, God forbid that we should express a personal opinion in our essays. The point was to try to present evidence and to leave it entirely neutral and to, to uh, derive a conclusion from the evidence that did not require personal opinion. So I had to unlearn that or teach myself a completely different way of writing essays when I then went to English school for a year and to a British university. So for concepts like good and bad, just sit down for a minute and think about all the equivalents you know um, but I'm thinking about more neutral equivalents, neutral alternatives to this idea of something is very good. And the words that you come up with will depend on the context. For example, if you were talking about the environment, then it might be something like environmentally friendly. If you were talking about the economy, then it might be something like um, profitable or beneficial. So... The synonyms that you're looking for will depend on the context in which you are likely to use them. But have a think about alternatives to the word good and the word bad. For bad, you might have 
harmful, again, we're talking about the environment or health, you might have detrimental, um, you might have dangerous, pernicious. It depends on context. See what you can come up with. Finally, since I've mentioned some fairly uh, big distinctions and simple ideas already. Ugh, I've not expressed that very well. Let, let me rewind and start that idea again. Uh, when people are talking in conferences, what they say might sound highly complicated, but it often boils down to some very simple distinctions between do they think that the proposal is good or bad? Do they think the budget should increase or de decrease? Do they think that we should begin um, a particular initiative or bring one to an end? So there are some fairly simple uh, sort of pairings there, distinctions and ideas. And here I think you can usefully take some ideas like big, small, start, end, manage, change, make, do, and even words like way, as in the way you do something, and build a word cloud or word cluster around each of those. So you would write your main word in the middle of a sheet of paper, for example, do, and then brainstorm all the possible synonyms and idioms and expressions that you know to express that. So for do, it might be something like, perform or implement or carry out and then have a think about the register of each of those solutions which one is more formal and which one is least formal here you can use online collocations dictionaries to help you and they will generally indicate if something is really formal or if it's old-fashioned and the other thing that you can do somebody mentioned this to me the other day and it hadn't even occurred to me but it's the obvious next step is you can ask an AI to help you. So someone I was speaking to the day before yesterday said that she was using ChatGPT and saying, give me some collocations with the word make or do. And maybe you could even say to ChatGPT, give me a formal equivalent of the word manage or deal with. I haven't tried this. It would be interesting to know what the result would be. Right, I've given you a whole list of exercises there for vocabulary building in a formal register. I hope that was useful. I will come back to you with part three, which is about activating uh, these formal turns of phrase that you have been assiduously building. In the meantime, of course, you can get in touch at info at theinterpretingcoach.com. Tell me what you think. Have you tried any of the exercises that I've mentioned? Do you have other ideas for how to improve your formal vocabulary in your B language? Do get in touch. And of course, I'm always interested to hear what you would like me to talk about next. There's a form in the show notes that you can click on. Well, there's a link which will take you to a very short form and you can just uh, say, if you have any ideas for future episodes. I'm really enjoying reading your suggestions, by the way, even though quite often I look at them and think, oh, I cannot say anything about that. I simply don't have the expertise. Thanks so much for listening. I hope it was useful and see you soon.